Hello, listeners of The Weeds. I want to tell you about a new podcast, The Arthur Brooks Show. That's me, Arthur Brooks, and I'm president of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm making a new podcast with Vox Media. Now, as president of AEI, that's a Washington think tank, I see bitter disagreement all the time, and it's terrible. We need some way to disagree, not less, but better. So this is a series that looks at the art of disagreement. The first episode is out July 12th. Find it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And most of all, subscribe right now. But do you read books or something? Yeah, usually. I mean, I try to. Lame. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias with Dara Lynn, and we are joined today by Dylan Scott. I would like to think that in, in spirit, we are joined by Sarah Cliff, yep. uh, because we are here to talk about the Affordable Care Act, the Obamacare, the health care. Sarah is, hopefully she'll listen. I don't know. I like when y'all did the immigration episode when I was out, Sarah said that she hoped I wasn't listening because she was worried that she would get something wrong. This is exactly where I am. So, Sarah, if you're listening, please be gentle with us. (laughs) No, but but Sarah's nice. You're mean. That's why we were scared. You know, people worry. This is slander. People worry. I am cranky. I am not mean. There's a very important distinction. Um, But so there's always a lot of news. These days, there's been – I feel like a million news cycles have lived and died since this announcement last week. Uh, but one of the things we want to do on The Weeds is bring to people's attention important things that are happening even if they don't have spectacular headlines attached to them. And and last week, the administration made an important announcement related to risk somethings. Risk adjustment yes. is what we're talking about. So what is that? So risk adjustment is this program within Obamacare. It's part of a a triplet of programs called the three R's that's basically supposed to stabilize the insurance markets that Obamacare set up. That's the idea. They work in slightly different ways, but the gist is that they move money around so that insurers who have populations that you would expect to have higher medical costs will get a little extra money for their bottom line, and hopefully that'll help keep premiums in check and and prevent um, costs from going up too high too quickly. Okay, so Um, let's pop this back to even like another other level, right? Because so it's like the premise of this whole shebang is that we want to make insurance companies accept clients who may be sick right. or have a lot that of was the disease. That was kind of That's, the first law of Obamacare. Like, but, but not just in a like diktat, like too bad you have to accept clients now in a like, okay, we understand that you guys are still businesses and right. so we're going to you know offer yeah. a bunch of care. Make it, make it work. Everybody knows pre-existing conditions. Right. The thing Obamacare right. did was eliminate pre-existing conditions, which meant health insurers had to take on everybody, including really sick So then people. everything else is about trying to make that work. Right, right. right. So you had an individual mandate. So it's like even if you're not sick – and you you got to get into the risk pool. Right. But then you have multiple competing companies. The companies are supposed to not be screening for risk. But as like a secondary backstop, if you like came up with a really clever advertising campaign that just happened to get you an extremely low cost population where somebody else had like the reputation of having really good doctors. So they got 
like a high cost population. Right. We're now supposed to adjust for that on the back end. Yeah, you, you want get, insurance companies. You get, you get financial compensation for having clients with actual medical needs. Right. Obamacare wanted insurance companies to be offering the best possible insurance products, not trying to cherry pick the healthiest customers so that their costs would be lower. And so, yeah, to your point, Matt, there was this this trio of programs called the three R's that were designed to achieve that purpose. And the gist was the federal government came up with this formula that evaluated an insurer's customers based on how sick they were, how high their medical costs might be. And if an insurance company had a higher than you, you know, kind of average risk, then they would get money out of the program. And if they had a lower than average risk, they would pay money into the program. And this moved about like $10 billion around in the Obamacare markets, which is a lot. Um, it's not necessarily like a ton, but it's a, it's a lot of money. And obviously insurers care if like a couple billion dollars go missing. And so what happened uh, last week is the Trump administration announced that they would freeze those risk adjustment payments, which means about $10 billion that insurance companies were expecting to get has just been put on hold. And the reason that they did that, there was a court case back in March in New Mexico. So I, I mentioned there's like this formula for how to decide who gets risk adjustment payments and who has to pay them. And a lot of small insurers have been annoyed with the formula that the federal government set up. And so one of them in New Mexico sued and basically said this formula is all screwed up and it favors the larger insurers who kind of know how to game this risk adjustment system. And so like the federal government needs to reevaluate this. A judge in New Mexico came out on their side and that was back in March. And so it had kind of just been laying dormant for a while. And then the other day, the Trump administration announced that because of this federal court order from a couple of months ago, they were going to put a pause on the risk adjustment payments to health insurance companies. So, so, so wait, so just to be clear, because I'm used to, you know, cases where somebody sues over a policy and the first thing the judge comes out with is a preliminary injunction if they're right. going to rule against the policy. And like, you know, you have to stop doing this. So did the judge in New Mexico actually, you know, issue the order that the federal government has to abide by this ruling and they just kind of didn't for a few months? So that's the weird thing about this. The federal judge did not like issue a national injunction against risk adjustment payments. He basically said that CMS should like produce a new formula, but he didn't like there wasn't very direct action mandated by his court order. And like if you read um, some legal experts and kind of friends of Vox, people like Nicholas Begley at the University of Michigan, they'll say the way the Trump administration has handled this is really weird. Like the Trump administration could have maybe just like stopped payments to this one New Mexico health insurer that was actually the subject of this court order. Mm -hmm. They could have appealed. Um, they could have basically done a lot of things besides just stopping and freezing these payments altogether. But that's what they decided to do. And it obviously fits in kind of this bigger narrative that we've been following where it seems like whenever the Trump administration has an opportunity to undercut the Affordable Care Act, they will take it. And that's kind of what seems like happened here. All that really is achieved by the Trump administration putting a stop to these risk adjustment payments, even temporarily, is it introduces some more uncertainty into the health insurance markets at the same time that insurers are trying to decide, like, do we want to participate in Obamacare next year? What rates are we going to set? And so it's kind of just a, an odd situation that's, that's very sort of weedsy in its particulars and has just sort of these odd features, but fits in a kind of much bigger story, I think, about how the administration has approached its 
kind of duty to implement. And I think it's it's important to understand this because they they were saying yesterday that this was mandated by the court, which doesn't seem to be strictly true. But I mean, it it was. I mean, because this, broadly speaking. This general subject comes up all the time in which like a district court judge will issue a ruling. The government will lose a case. And then there is always the question like so what? And a trend that we actually seen, right, as part of increasing polarization and constitutional hardball is it starting in Obama's second term but continuing in, into Trump's term, we have seen a growing aggressiveness by district court judges yes. who when they decide that they want to rule against the government will issue what at least purport to be national injunctions. And this happened with the travel ban, but it, it, it happened both with like Obama's efforts to do liberal immigration policies, getting smacked at by conservative judges. And it seems, I would say like not a great trend. It, it's it's a little bit at odds with the way the American court system is supposed to work. But this case was more like an old fashioned district court ruling right. where like he ruled in favor of the plaintiff and then left it very much an open question, right? It, it kicks the ball back to HHS to be like, I have ruled that the plaintiff is correct and this formula is not right. So now it's to you right. to resolve this, right? And like a natural resolution would have been to perhaps freeze payments in New Mexico right. for some period of time and then say that next year a new formula will come out. And that's the strangest thing about this is they've already fixed the risk adjustment formula for next year. So it's not like risk adjustment payments are kind of in jeopardy in perpetuity. Like it should, this should be resolved pretty soon, although we're still waiting for a little more clarity from the Trump administration on that. What they've really only done is take this, to your point, very narrow ruling – and put $10 billion in risk adjustment payments on hold. Yeah, and so this is not the first time we have seen this tactic from the Trump administration either. This is similar to what they've done on DACA, where even before there was an actual lawsuit challenging them to stop, you know, granting work permits, they said, we think ultimately this will be found unconstitutional. And the thing about that is, you know, the Supreme Court is pretty clearly teeing up at some point to put the smackdown on district court judges over nationwide injunctions. They clearly think that it's a problem because the job of a district court judge is trial and that is fact-finding. There has to be particular standing for that particular plaintiff. There's not necessarily, you know, the kind of broader considerations of national law aren't supposed to come up at that phase. And, you know, so that does make sense. But the exact same people who are saying inter alia, it is not fair for a single judge to be making national policy because it, like, increases the uncertainty of it, are making the decision that except if we if we ultimately agree with their constitutional interpretation, which just – it's not a great way, you know, as Matt was saying, to kind of use the court system. But it also – and this is something that, I, you know, that Sarah has kind of raised a bunch. It's another way of taking advantage of the politics of uncertainty, right? Even right. if you think that ultimately you're going to be forced to – do something because this court ruling will probably ultimately result in an actual order to like fix risk adjustment payments rather than stop them. In the meantime, you can make it as difficult as possible. And this especially seems super worrisome to like insurers, right? Like yeah. business 
owners seem like they probably need a certain amount of predictability here. Like, how is the insurance market not freaking out? Yeah. Just to, like, add a little on to that, like, the other strange thing about this is there was a second court ruling in Massachusetts, more or less on the same issue, that actually upheld the risk adjustment program as it currently exists. So that really gives the impression that the Trump administration is just picking and choosing what court orders to follow when they it kind of furthers their ideological agenda. I do think, you know, to your point, Dara, there's nothing that health insurers hate more than uncertainty. And like I said before, they're currently in the process of deciding whether or not to participate in the Obamacare markets next year. They're currently in the process of setting their rates for 2019. And so, I mean, we haven't seen any kind of immediate reaction yet. But as I've, I think, tried to allude to a few times, this is obviously a piece of a much bigger puzzle going into 2019, where this will be the first year without an individual mandate. Trump ended a different series of Obamacare payments to health insurers last year, and we're still adjusting to that reality. The Trump administration is expanding skimpier, less comprehensive health insurance that doesn't have to comply with Obamacare's rules and is kind of is sold out of sight of its market. So like the risk adjustments are just a very or one piece of of the uncertainty that health insurers are facing as a, I mean as a re- direct result of the actions that the Trump administration and Republicans have taken over the last couple of years. And there was a, a new new right. twist in this with right. the, the uh, navigators, right? right? So so navigators are people who are supposed to be um, they're supposed to like help you, right? You're, yeah. so, you're supposed to be able to phone up and say. I'm working in wherever, you know, I don't make much money. I heard you could get insurance now, but I don't really understand. Yeah. You know, and they're I, usually I, like local I nonprofits. I, I, I don't listen to the weeds. Right. Um, help me help me find an appropriate option. Right. Yep. Like there used to be full-time government employees who would do this kind of thing, but this is a very like 21st century way to do it. Like instead we'll just pay people who like also have other jobs. Right. And like I said, they're usually like local nonprofits. It's a very like benign element of the ACA. But yes, to to your point, Matt, we, the Trump administration also announced this week that they were going to cut the grants that helped to fund that navigators program to help people sign up for insurance by like 70%. It was a $26 million cut. They also had cut the program pretty substantially last year. So if you go from the end of the Obama administration to now year two of the Trump administration, the budget for navigators has been cut, I think, from like 60 million or so to about 10 million now. And that's also on top of cutting the advertising budget from a, for Obamacare last year from $100 million to $10 million. No, and- aspect of this that I'm a little bit confused by is that my understanding of the way the American government works is that Congress passes appropriations bills and then the president doesn't get to just say, no, we're not going to do those grants. Right. As I understand it, there is some discretion for HHS because the Navigators program is paid for through a a fee that HHS collects from the health insurers who sell coverage on – on healthcare.gov and the state-based market. Okay, so, this, so it's not so, appropriated funds. I, I see. I so think congressional Democrats wrote it to be self-financing, right? Out of the insurance company fees, exactly. Presumably, so that Congress could not slash appropriations in subsequent years when Democrats were running HHS. Right. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> now, but now that you the, know, we're the, seeing the other side the, of that the, with the, the Trump administration, the shoe is on the other foot. Exactly. Um, it's almost as if. Putting powers in the executive branch from the legislative branch is going to result in different policy outcomes right. depending on who runs the executive. Well, branch. no, but so okay, but to in defense of 
the evidently short-sighted decision here, right? Our traditional understanding, if you look up some old tomes on how American politics works, right, is that legislators mostly have safe seats. And so they indulge the ideological priorities of their constituents and associated interest groups, and they are accountable primarily to their sort of expressive endorsement of the local party line. And then members in swing districts are different, but like the typical member of Congress Mm -hmm. doesn't face competitive elections. Mm -hmm. And so it's like if your voters are the abolish ICE people, like that's what you say. If your (laughs) voters are the repeal Obamacare people, that's what you say. And the question of like how is this going to work is not important to you. Right. right? But the president is like always in a swing seat. Right. And the president, I mean, supposedly the way the system works is that the president needs to go to the mushy middle of the public and say, I have done a good job as president and things are now better than they used to be. There are not big problems. Instead, problems have been solved. And so supposedly, right, the executive official will make a more pragmatic decision about all of these kinds of questions and avoid huge blowups. And we even see that, right, that some, though not all, Republican governors have embraced Medicaid expansion. Mm -hmm. And like virtually no Republican like state senators have. Yeah. Right. Because like that's the same theory is that like if you are in fact the governor of Ohio, like it's just going to be better if more people have health insurance. Whereas if you're a Republican legislator, you are against Obamacare. right? Right. And so but so Trump has been turning this on its head, right? And he is hacking away at this stuff in a way that makes some people's lives worse. Right. And doesn't it doesn't help anyone in particular, right? There's no there's no like offsetting person who's like, wow, it was like it was really hard for Sally to get her health care. So now I have more money, right? Like, right. There, there's there's no upside. The, right. this, this is a really novel political theory, and I think we're not just seeing this with the ACA, but I think the ACA is where it's it might be the most salient because that's the place where a lot of people who may have voted for Trump may see their lives worse, but not because of policies that are associated with Trump. Like right. traditionally, the, you know, in addition to the kind of median voter theory stuff Matt was talking about, there's a certain extent to which incumbent politicians assume that they are going to bear responsibility for the status quo, that any election, you know, midterms, re-election, the fundamental question for voters is going to be, are you better off than you were two or four or six, whatever, years ago? The Trump administration appears to believe that they have discovered an end run around that, that things that are associated with Democrats, like the Affordable Care Act, aren't going to rebound badly on them if they don't work as well. That, like, in fact, that's going to help them because it's going to be Obamacare failing. It's not clear whether that's the case, right? Like, it is also very plausible that people will be saying, gee, I thought everything was bad in 2016 and now everything is even worse. I guess I'd better vote for the other guys. It might, however, be the case because politics has been subsumed by the culture war that people won't assume that just because everything in their lives that they voted on in 2016 is even worse, that that is somehow the fault of the people who are currently, you know, in the White House. It's it's a very novel political 
read and I'm not I'm not sure that it's wrong. Right. But it, of course, means that the Trump administration is accepting as a political good the fact that a lot of people, including a lot of people who voted for them, are going to have a harder time getting health insurance. Yeah. And I think there are I agree that that's sort of the, the gamble that they're making. I do think there are two problems with it, though. One is I mean, we've seen a lot of polling that shows two things. One, that Obamacare got a lot more popular when Republicans were trying to repeal it last year. And two, that like we have seen polling. It's hard to know how how seriously or literal to take this. But we have seen polling that a, major, a pretty strong majority, like 60 percent of people think that the Trump administration and Republicans are responsible for what happens to health care now. Ooh. And I think that's a thing that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's easy to forget that Obamacare really only affects in a really direct sense like – maybe 30 million people. People, I think, more have just a general sense of how healthcare is and their immediate sense with healthcare, and they tend to just blame whoever is in charge at the given moment with the problems that they experience. The other part of the problem for the Trump administration, I think, is that I agree that it's sort of like they just want to chip away at the law so much that I think they have a pipe dream that someday people just wouldn't care if it kind of went away. But the issue with that is that Obamacare in a lot of ways is kind of self-sustaining. You have like 10 million people who receive subsidies from the federal government to buy private health insurance. And that means that like they're more or less inoculated from the premium increases that insurers might propose as a result of all the actions that the Trump administration has taken. And then you have like 20 million people covered by Medicaid expansion, which is totally divorced from risk adjustments and the insurance marketplaces and all the stuff that we've been talking about. And so you can only sort of do so much damage to Obamacare through administrative action as long as people are getting federal assistance to buy their health insurance. And so it's sort of this weird in-between where it's like, I agree, like, I think that is the calculus that they have come up with. And yet, like, there's at least as good a chance as any that they'll get blamed for what happens. And it doesn't seem like they have just the mechanisms at their disposal to actually drag down Obamacare. Like, the the law has proven pretty resilient in the face of what they've done so, so far. I think we should take our break and then come back. And I, I do want to talk about that, like, bigger trajectory. Hiring, you know, has always been hard. And it's, frankly, it's getting harder these days. If you're, like, a real Weeds fan, you, you probably track the monthly JOLTS data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And it will tell you that the ratio of job openings to job seekers is higher than ever. And so if you are trying to build a company, build a brand, uh, you really need to do a good job of it. You need good tools to hire. And ZipRecruiter is the tool that you want. Uh, so if you go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Weeds, you're going to get a great deal on this. So how does it work? ZipRecruiter, it sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. So that's good. Uh, but they don't stop there. They use powerful matching technology. They scan thousands of resumes and they find people with the right experience and they invite them to apply to your job. In other words, it acts like a recruiter, like a human recruiter, except much cheaper, much more efficient because they're using, you know, computers... AI, all that good stuff. So ZipRecruiter analyzes each application that comes in. It spotlights the top candidates for you so you don't miss the great matches. It's so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. So with the results like that, it is no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. Right now, Weeds listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Weeds. They want me to spell it out, W-E-E-D-S. But frankly, if you're in a position to hire people, you should know how to spell weeds. ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. It's the smartest way to hire. 
I'm Charlie Hall. And I'm Dave Tack. We're the hosts of Polygon's Quality Control. Our show is a lot of things to a lot of people. It's our chance to talk about the best new video games with the folks who play them first. It's a place to dissect the latest movies and TV shows. It's our opportunity to get out from behind the keyboard and tell you what we think. In person, every week. The world of entertainment moves fast. Quality Control helps you keep pace. Find us for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. What is the end game on healthcare, right? And once upon a time, we had a world where the end game for mainstream Democrats was like tighten up the screws on the Affordable Care Act, right? Which I think everybody acknowledged had not been like handed down on golden tablets by God, uh, but like they thought was pretty good and like had some flaws that should be addressed. They had passed the bill. They had found out what was in it. They were now going to fix (laughs) it. Right. If they got congressional majority again, they were going to make some changes. But like basically the idea of subsidized, regulated private health insurance markets was one that they believed in, that they hoped as they improved and made better, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger, be more and more stable and in some long-term trajectory, like take over, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of it being a a small niche for people who didn't have job-based insurance, in the future, like everybody might have Obamacare. Then you had a, a like a disempowered left group that was like, no, we should expand Medicare and everybody should sign up to it. And he had conservatives and I, I don't know exactly what they thought. Um, <laughs> but they've come – at least at one point, they were going to repeal Obamacare. Right. Then they didn't. Nope. And now they're like – they're wailing away at it. And it seems to me that while they have not killed the Affordable Care Act – they have killed centrist Democrats' policy vision. Yeah. Right? Because it's clear that you cannot have as your long-term vision for American healthcare subsidized, regulated private insurance markets if every time there's a Republican president, they're going to deliberately manipulate the regulatory scheme to make it not work. Yeah. Well, this goes back to what Dara was saying about, you know, it's all well and good to leave all this discretion to the federal government about how to implement this program until somebody takes power who is uh, hostile to the program. Right. So, yeah, no, I think that's true. And and so it does leave us in this strange middle ground where conservatives obviously haven't articulated a health policy vision that they can actually pass And there are proposals out there about how to try to prop up Obamacare a little more at the margins. But to your point, Matt, I think all of the energy has moved to kind of an entirely different conversation. I've always – something that's kind of crystallized for me over the last year or so of following this is that like Obamacare is almost a law without a constituency except for Mm -hmm. the – 30 million people. But I, mean, but I, but I just want to emphasize and that it's not insurance companies, which is right. like not a nothing stakeholder. Yeah. Well, but, but I just want to emphasize that it's not just the energy, though, because like part of the dynamic on healthcare as a money issue is like activist driven. Mm. Right. Sometimes people ask, you know, it's like, why did you change your mind? And it's like, well, like the facts changed. Mm-hmm. Right. And like. In my view, as of 2014, it was perfectly reasonable to say, like, we should try to make this work better. And that would make more sense than, like, another huge change. And it's, like, legitimately now not reasonable to have that be your opinion. Right. Because it doesn't work, right? Like, like, 
Medicare continues to function fine even when Donald Trump is president and the ACA exchanges don't. Yeah. And like that's a factual. And it's not just that they don't but that this has not produced intraparty grumbling, mm-hmm. right? So like I don't know what the future of NATO is. But I am aware that like most Republican Party elected officials are not jumping around saying like, I think this fucking round with NATO is amazing. <laughs> you know, so it's it's like not crazy to hope that like some future Republican president just won't have this view. Yeah. I mean, or maybe I mean, you know more, you talk to more healthcare people, but like it does not strike me that there is like meaningful conservative group saying like, no, we need to try to make something work right. or else Bernie Sanders is going to take over the whole healthcare system. It seems like all conservatives are more or less on board for whatever it is they're trying to do here. Well, yeah. but this is why like whatever it is they're trying to do here gets super relevant <laughs> because like it's not clear that they're going to be able to pass a bill. That was literally what 2017 was about. They realized that Everyone wanting to pass a bill was not, in fact, a sufficient condition to pass a bill. So what that means is that in the absence of Congress doing anything, which I think we can assume is a safe baseline condition right now, Mm -hmm. uh, just generally, what we have is an administration that is trying to regulatorily slow down the unpopular parts of the ACA, which as far as I understand it are – everything but pre-existing conditions. Right. Or like what they understand to be the unpopular parts of the ACA rather. So – Getting back to the beginning of the episode, we're going toward a regulatory endgame where everything is at minimal functionality except the thing that was going to put such a burden on insurers that they had to pad all of this other stuff in there to make it work, which obviously is not a policy outcome that is going to be good for anyone that anyone is going to want. It looks like Republicans are kind of doing a heighten the contradictions thing on themselves, right? That they're like kind of going for something that may play well great in the short term, but is not heading to an endgame that they actually want. And I guess hoping that that means they're going to come up with a better solution, which is not how Congress works. Yeah, right. Something that's become clear over the last couple of years is that the real game-changing element of the Affordable Care Act was the pre-existing condition stuff. It's something that it imbued the law with this sense of universalism. Like everybody should be entitled to health insurance no matter kind of what their medical history or, or life situation. And that seems to be a sort of bargain that a majority of the American people are on board with. And that's really something that tripped up Republicans when they were trying to repeal the Affordable Care Act. But like if you accept that premise, then you have to accept some kind of regulatory structure to implement it if you're going to keep private insurance. And so like I think going back to what you were saying, Matt, like you will occasionally hear kind of voices in the wilderness on the right who are like – At some point, we may need to make peace with Obamacare because at least it's a structure based on private insurance and markets, which we believe in, because the alternative is like a more robust government role, whether that's like single payer health insurance or something close to it. But like those are very much like the voices in the wilderness. They're kind of isolated because there has just been over the better part of a decade now this sort of 
is existential, visceral hatred of the Affordable Care Act and what it kind of represented on the right. And so, like, that is sort of, I think, the contradiction they're trying to work through is that, like, the American people believe that people with pre-existing conditions should be protected. In order to do that, you have to have certain federal regulations that make sure everybody has access to health insurance and federal spending to make sure that they're able to afford it. And, like, those ideas are so are in a lot of ways kind of contradictory to a conservative outlook. But like at the same time, like that seems like the baseline right now based totally, on where the public is at. This is totally blowing my mind. You've So the thing about this is that you've kind of raised the cognitive dissonance rather that often goes on with like middle class social services programs, right? The like the submerged state idea that people who generally think they don't like welfare or aren't on welfare, in fact, take advantage of a whole suite of government benefits that are politically geared as not welfare so that they can be politically sustainable. And like, if you look at Obamacare as a submerged state program that was designed to not be a thing that government was giving people that had all these like public nonprofit workarounds, public-private workarounds. It was designed for exactly the people who think of themselves as not liking welfare, but in fact have pre-existing conditions or are older people with higher medical costs. And by kind of exposing the skeleton of the submerged state by pointing out like all of the ways in which government was tinkering with things to deliver this product that people said they wanted, they were able to strip political support for it. And I I wonder if that is a game plan that one could feasibly see on other kind of middle class support things by people who are very invested in small government. I don't think we're going to actually see that because the fact of the matter is that the Republican base are the people who think they hate welfare, but who, in fact, are more likely to have like the mortgage interest deduction. This law was in some ways designed to be insulated from the attacks that you would have on Medicare for all, and it didn't work. But but also, I mean, you see a real breakdown of a a classical understanding of representative government (laughs) here, right? Which is that like— Only that. No, but I mean, it's it's just it's profound, right? Like, I'm sure you can find, in retrospect, wrong American Prospect articles I wrote talking about path dependence and institutional development and how, like, look, there is a clear popular consensus in the United States that people should have access to medical care, right, even regardless of ability to pay. And then also we've seen that's not an eccentric aspect of American public opinion. Like, all countries have this. And this gets addressed in different countries in different ways, but that, like, Loopy leftists who are like insisting that we must address it by like having a single taxpayer financed program are not being realistic. There's like a bajillion stakeholders in the industry. And like, yes, as like pressure mounts to do something to take care of everybody, like something will be done. But like what must be done is something that fills the existing channels, Mm -hmm. right? But Republicans are just like they are – refusing to bend rather than break, right, in the face of this, right? Like they are insisting that like the only thing that they will accept in American healthcare is like either you get sick and you die because you're too poor or Medicare. Right. 
Right. right. And like it's actually not like the left wing people, right? Like Bernie Sanders, absolutely Medicare for all advocate, but like also clearly like a flexible person. Like mm-hmm. he voted for the ACA. He voted against ACA repeal. If you sponsored a bill that like gave six dollars to someone to open a clinic somewhere, he wouldn't be like, fuck you, man. Like we need single <laughs> way. You know, like the people on the left have like a goal mm-hmm. and a flexible approach to it. And the people on the right are like, I don't know what they're doing. Right. You know, they don't have a goal goal. and an inflexible approach to (laughs) it. But I mean, like, they're completely out to lunch. And it's the opposite of, like, how did Romney Care come to Massachusetts, right? It was like this. Like, the medical industry in in Massachusetts is huge, right? It's a big, it's a medical device cluster. They have, like, a ton of hospitals and medical schools and blah, blah, blah. It's also a very liberal state. So people were like, we're going to do healthcare to everyone. Mm -hmm. We're going to do healthcare to everyone. And, like, the business community was freaking out. And so Mitt Romney, Republican governor, like he tried to help them out by producing a solution that would give the left-wing people the outcome that they wanted, which was people get health care, but would reconcile it with the interests of other stakeholders in the system. Now, he could have said, look, I'm going to be a fearsome ideological warrior. Right. And and, And he probably could have blocked legislation as long as he was governor. But like, then Deval Patrick would have just sign something else, right. you know, and like that's how government is supposed to work. Yeah, like with the dialogue, we focus a lot on like the Trump specific antics, mm-hmm. but this is like way bigger, broader than Trump, and like honestly weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that th- this is something that I've been thinking this week as we like have dealt with Supreme Court stuff, but that talking about the injunction that wasn't at the beginning of this episode, like we are in an equilibrium right now where instead of the classical checks and balances between the three branches of federal government that we're used to hearing about, we have like an equilibrium in which the executive branch makes policy. The judicial branch like sometimes stops that policy if judges disagree with it. And the legislative branch is responsible for either like confirming or delaying staffing the bench with judges. Like, that's how it's working right now. It is not how it is supposed to work. It, you know, inter alia gives a ton of power to the executive branch because they're also the ones naming the damn judges. But I think that there are probably sub-constitutional things, not like unconstitutional, but like short of amending the constitution. There would be things you could do to kind of build in the understanding that that is the way that it's supposed to work, like making it perversely easier for judges not to get confirmed if if that's like the primary role of the legislature is to determine who's sitting right. on the bench, right? Like figuring out what we're doing with nationwide injunctions, figuring out what happens when there are conflicting nationwide injunctions, which we're probably heading toward in the DACA case. And right. no one I talked to has any idea what the government is supposed to do in that circumstance. Like There are ways we could accommodate ourselves to that. Instead, it seems like everyone is operating on the assumption that because it ought to work as the legislature writes the laws and passes them, the executive branch enforces them, and then the judicial branch, like, evaluates it-ish how they're being enforced, like, they're not willing to make any any kind of workarounds to figure out how the new stasis can work. Yeah. I mean, I I think one way to think about it, at least especially with Obamacare, is like there's nobody at the wheel right now. Like the legislative 
branch, to your point, Dara, has basically deferred all of its policymaking responsibility to the executive branch, to the Trump administration. And the Trump administration clearly has no interest in actually implementing the health care law as it was originally envisioned and, and rather are kind of taking whatever steps they can to nick away at it at the edges. And so like it's just this weird, yeah, status quo where like there's this huge federal law that affects 30 million people and yet nobody seems to be really – responsible for it and it's just very strange right and then but, but also i mean to bring this back to, to brett kavanaugh right one of the i think the most striking things that he is he's written is this kind of aside in his obamacare case where he's like the president could just not enforce these rules right. if he wants to which you know i don't know law <laughs> whatever man um but like again this is a a guy who like Ask conservatives. Like conservatives will tell you that according to conservatives, Brett Kavanaugh is a far above average conservative, right? Like conservatives believe that Brett Kavanaugh is one of the smartest, hardworking, most important thinkers in their movement who should be entrusted with a scary level of completely unaccountable power. Mm -hmm. And so like his view is the only way for elected officials to ensure voters' desire that people have health insurance is a single-payer system. Right. Right? Like, that's not me, a sellout neoliberal shill, mm -hmm. and that's not me talking about a dumbass conservative somewhere. This is the guy who, like, they, you can read all these crazy op-eds about how wonderful Brett Kavanaugh is. Yeah. And so, like, that's him. So, like, what like what are we supposed to do, right? But, like, yeah, but no, he's not Brett Kavanaugh's theory of government generally is that because the judiciary shouldn't be stepping in and doing things, if Congress wants things done, Congress needs to do them, which is, like, something that, Every civics textbook in America would agree with, but very few members of Congress right. would bother. But I mean, right. I, I just think it's remarkable that I mean, this is a key issue, right? So like healthcare is what? It's like 16, 17 percent of the of economy. The economy, yeah. And it's been a perennial topic of debate in the United States Toward since the, top the, of the, since the 40s. Yeah. Um, it's a key issue, like not just here, but like in all countries mm -hmm. all the time. <laughs> like this is one of the main things that happens in politics yeah. throughout history, throughout the world. And like Republicans are not giving – I don't feel like there's a lot of serious thought being given on their side to like what it is that they're doing here. Right. Well, and this is a years-long story, right? Like they've been campaigning to repeal and replace Obamacare literally from the day that it was passed in 2010. Right. They had seven years before they actually took back power and were able to implement their vision for doing that and they – came up with a plan that didn't really work and that they couldn't actually pass. Wait, well, so, I mean, like, and my question it, with, you know, with the stuff that the administration is doing now is, like, are any Republicans getting nervous about this? Like, right. congressional Republicans haven't been super jazzed when the administration has, like, ramped up pressure on them to do things. Yeah. Like, is anyone going, hey, this is maybe a problem for us in the midterms. Maybe you should stop trying to, like, play Jenga with the ACA and see when it falls. Yeah. Well, I don't think there's anybody who's, at least that I've seen, who's willing to kind of come to Obamacare's defense among the Republicans. I do think there is an awareness that some of this stuff makes them vulnerable in the fall elections. Like, for example, in the Obamacare stabilization bills that never actually came to pass, there would have been funding 
for the navigators that we talked about to kind of restore some of the money that the Trump administration had cut last year. But I think there is an acute awareness that healthcare can be a rough is going to be a rough issue for them politically because there was a really great piece in the Huffington Post. It might have been a month or so ago now where like all of a sudden in a complete reversal from the last seven years, Democrats are running healthcare campaign ads and Republicans have almost completely eliminated them. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, like, I think that speaks to how this issue has really turned on its head and, and pretty rapidly since the repeal fight last and year. And it's worth saying, since I've been ragging on Republicans as usual, that there's a there's like an element of dirty pool to this, right? That like one thing that happened when Obama was in office is that every year health insurance premiums would go up yeah. for like right. everybody mm-hmm. because that's what happens. Right. As they have been for decades. <laughs> Forever. And this had nothing to do with Obamacare. No. It's just the relentless march. You can read William Balmo's book on why this happens if you're curious. But like nobody can stop it. But because there was a big high-profile political fight about Obamacare and Obamacare has something to do with insurance premiums for Obamacare recipients, you could always like muddy the waters and oh, yeah. just be like, Obama said his healthcare plan was good, but your healthcare is getting more expensive. And it's like, ah, gotcha, <laughs> right? But now it's reversed yep. because it's like Republicans are the ones who have been doing things on healthcare. Yeah. And it's even true that like the Trump administration's actions have raised health insurance premiums, asterisk, footnote, for Obamacare recipients. Right, right. Um, But like you can make it that this is the reason everybody's premiums are going up by saying even like things that will pass a, you know, pants on fire fact-checking test, like Trump really has deliberately taken actions to raise health insurance premiums for millions of Americans. And if I don't specify like which millions, you know, it's like that's, that's your problem, incoming Republican. So it's like it's not actually true. Unless you are on an ACA exchange, right. that Donald Trump is the reason your insurance premiums are going up. But it, I don't know. Good yeah. luck explaining that. Right. And like, who can blame people for not having a sophisticated understanding of how the healthcare system works? Right. And that so, is, in fact, supposed to be the job of, say, legislators. Right. Legislators and the executive branch right. are supposed to implement the policies. And that, that is, the, I mean, and there is a reason why incumbents take the blame for this stuff, even if it's not their initiatives that are directly responsible, which is that, like, it is true that they haven't been doing anything. Right. And, um, and as you already said, like, we shouldn't lose track like I wrote his piece last year that was like Obamacare premiums were you know they had gone up and again to your point Matt like that I'm sure that got confused in the campaigns of 2014 and 2016 but like they had started to stabilize like the market had kind of finally figured out what it was and what price points would be necessary to make it sustainable and then Trump came in and started fiddling with all this stuff cutting off payments here and cutting off payments there and slashing the advertising budget and that and then you also had the repeal of the individual mandate in the Republican tax bill in December. And that is at this point what's led to premium increases kind of going forward. Otherwise, we'd have a pretty stable, normal market. Isn't this kind of why we're supposed to have a Republican instead of a democracy that like there are things that professionals who have been chosen by the people to be their full-time representative can understand because that's their job, that mm. people who other ha- have other things going on with their lives don't, and that therefore it's incumbent on the representatives to understand when the people's short-term interests might not be the people's long-term interests. Like, I feel like in theory that's how this is supposed to work, that sometimes, you know, if there's an unsophisticated understanding of how things are supposed to go, that with 
without like talking down to their constituents, representatives are supposed to be able to like finesse that and say, I hear your concerns. We'll figure out what we can do in the meantime. But like, you know, it's very important to all of us that we have a healthcare system that works for everybody and that people with pre-existing conditions are protected. And so, you know, I don't want to act too rashly to to take that away. Right. Well, I think that goes back to like the question of what's the end game here. Right. Like Republicans goal is not necessarily to make sure more people have health insurance Indeed. and have, have to pay less money for their medical care. Their goal, as far as I can tell, is just to end Obamacare. And so in a perverse way, these administrative actions and this kind of cutting around the edges does advance that goal. It's just not a goal that is shared by the people that they represent, to your point. And plus, your plus point they, they fix prescription drugs. Right, yeah. Prescription drug prices are lower now, in case you hadn't noticed. That's that's not true. <laughs> uh, we will, we'll have to do a different episode on prescription drug pricing one of these days. But for now, let's leave it at that. But I do want to tell you that The Weeds has been nominated for this year's People's Choice Podcast Awards. So if you are a person, which I hope you are. And you if can, you have free will. Yes. You can vote for our show <laughs> for free by going to podcastawards.com or by tapping the link in the show notes. Voting ends Tuesday, July 31st. So do not wait. Go to Podcast Awards right now to cast your vote for the weeds. So with that, uh, thank you, Dylan, for joining us. I assume right after you leave, you will be uh, voting for us on People's Choice Awards. Of course. Uh, Thanks to Griffin Tanner, our our engineer. Uh, Bridget Armstrong is on vacation, but, but she will be back soon, and the weeds will return on Tuesday. Have you watched Vox's new Netflix show yet? If you haven't, like, do it. Go do it tonight. The show is called Explained. Each episode is a 15-minute deep dive into one important topic. This week's episode is all about the exclamation point. Exclamation point! I got an early preview, and and I think you're going to love it. It breaks down how our use of the exclamation point has changed throughout history. You probably know if you existed. People use more exclamation points than they used to. But, like, the whole history of that is fascinating. There's more to it than you might think. And you understand, like, why is this so confusing? Is there something better we can do? And explains the surprising history of the new punctus. It considers another way to end a sentence, the interrobang. Um, you know, it, it's really good. It's a really interesting show. So check it out on Netflix or go straight to netflix.com explained. And while you're there, if you want to get notified about new episodes automatically, just add explain to your list.